Hey, it's good to be back. I've been gone for the last, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and I've been gone for the last 30 days or so, 40 days, and, uh, and everybody's been asking, well, how was your time away? Well, a lot of you know that it totally went different than we expected. We, uh, we lost uh, my mother-in-law. She passed away a couple weeks ago, and my aunt passed away about a week after that, and uh, so it was just a totally different getaway. Um, it wasn't really a getaway. We just had tons of people, family gathered and uh, celebrating the lives of amazing women who have passed from our family. And so, um, but I was talking to my wife this morning and she said, you know, it would have been really difficult to navigate all of the stuff that we navigated this last month if we were trying to work at the same time. And so, so thanks for uh, your grace toward our family, the ways that you have served us and prayed for us for the ways that you have blessed us. Um, we're just overwhelmed. Um, Margaret, who passed away, my mother-in-law, she helped plant the church 20 years ago, and uh, she was one of the 12. There were 12 of us that kind of got this whole thing kicked off, and, uh, and she was faithful all the way through teaching Sunday school and leading women's ministries and praying and discipling women, praying for and discipling women. And just over, she just was a, a very fruitful wonderful person all the days of her life, and so we're so thankful. So it's good to be back. So, so good to be back. And uh, we've got a guest speaker with us today. Seth Gruber will be speaking all the way from Kansas. He's actually living in Kansas currently, but is originally a California boy, so um, like me, and uh, so grew up in Southern California. And uh, so Seth, why don't you come on up, and we'll just um, pray over you, and uh, let's give Seth a warm welcome. I want to say thank you to uh, Pastor Jeremy as well. Jeremy has is, is worked really, really well to get Seth here, worked hard, and uh, um, our staff watched a video of you, Seth, Uh-oh. preaching, teaching, leading down in, in Chino Hills, and, um, and so I told, told Jeremy, I said, I wonder if we can get Seth to our place, you know, and uh, he said, well, I think he preaches at bigger churches. <laughs> I said, well, just try anyway. We'll see what happens, you know, so... Um, and so thanks for making yourself available, flying in late last night as your flight got delayed over and over again. So thanks for being here. I just want to pray over you and just thank, thank you, brother. you for being here. Lord, thank you for Seth and for his family and for the ways that they obediently follow your call for their lives, Lord God, and uh, speak truth all over, the, all over the country, Lord. And so I pray blessing upon him, Lord, as he brings this truth to us today. Lord, help us to have open hearts open minds. Lord, help us to be teachable, Lord, in Jesus' name. God, direct him, lead him by your spirit and through your word, we pray. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, you, brother. You. <clears throat> Good morning. It's awesome to be back in <clears throat> my home state. Um, sorry, that's probably COVID. I don't really know. Um, frankly, I just don't care anymore. Um, so it's, it's good to be with you. All you uh, super spreaders, super spreaders, granny killers. Um, It was awesome. Uh, Jeremy was telling me about uh, this church's obedience uh, to um, not forsake meeting together, as so many are in the habit of doing of the last uh, three years years or so. And uh, my home church is Godspeed Calvary Chapel, Pastor Rob McCoy. 
um, the co-founder of Turning Point USA Faith with my friend Charlie Kirk, um, and probably the one of the most politically engaged pastors in California. Of course, he was the mayor of Thousand Oaks while the senior pastor of Godspeed Calvary Chapel. And then, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom Leaney, you know, said, uh, yeah, you can't meet in churches. You know, and he's, he's like, well, too bad. Uh, got served a lawsuit. Um, they showed up to fine or arrest uh, Pastor Rob and his staff. And then a thousand Christians from around California drove hours to Godspeed Calvary Chapel, stood in front of the front doors and said, start with us. And the, uh, the public, the public health, right, they were just following the science. They were like, oh, we don't know what to do with this kind of Christianity. You know, my friend Pastor Mark Little of uh, Cure America Action is a wonderful brother. When he kind of got awakened to the fact, um, and this will kind of be the conclusion of my sermon this morning, which is that the culture war was always a proxy war for a deeper spiritual war. And when he got awakened to that and started taking his church to Sacramento to pray, to meet with um, legislators and to demand that they protect their neighbors, they said, what are you doing here? The church never comes here. So we have been doing what my pastor Rob McCoy diagnoses as the problem in American evangelicalism. We've been waiting downstream to pick up human heartache that we helped create through our political apathy upstream because we were living under the spell of the Johnson Amendment. Separation of church and state. Okay, then let's keep this state out of the church. Oh, they only mean that one way. They don't mean keep the state out of the church. They mean prevent the church from influencing secular governments for God's purposes. Because they understand that those were the believers that built this republic. And their Judeo-Christian ideas is what has enabled us to be free. When the church starts showing up, Satan starts sitting down, brothers and sisters. So we're at a very late moment in this culture war, and if we're going to figure out how we got to this moment where the FBI arrested a pro-life Catholic dad of seven at his home in Philadelphia while he had a quiche in the oven at 6.45 a.m. because he protected his 12-year-old son from a Planned Parenthood death escort, escort, but we call them death escorts, the people who usher women into the doors of death to pay a pretty penny to dismember their child. Uh, because he protected his 12-year-old son from a Planned Parenthood death court, screaming obscenities into his 12-year-old son's face, he gets served a target letter from the federal government, and the FBI shows up unannounced with 30 armed FBI agents with rifles drawn, pointed at him, and handcuffed at his ankles and his wrists, torn away within 15 minutes while his seven children are screaming, you're taking my best friend. He just got acquitted, thankfully. But as we're living in a moment where pro-life OBGYNs are being told, oh, you don't want to perform abortions? Okay, then we're going to sue you for pregnancy discrimination. Pregnancy discrimination? I thought that, that was if, if you got fired for being pregnant. Have you noticed how they redefine every term and every concept? Have you noticed this? This has been the goal of the modern left for decades, redefine everything. It, it reminds me of um, Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> who's chit-chatting with Humpty Dumpty. And Humpty Dumpty says, when I, when I use a word... It means precisely what I choose it to mean. Neither more nor less. And Alice goes, can words really mean so many different things? That's all. And Humpty Dumpty says, the question is which is to be master? That's all. Who knew that Humpty Dumpty would give you the strategy of the modern leftist secular moral revolutionaries over the last 200 years? 
it means precisely what I choose it to mean. Because you see, if language is subjective and words only mean something insofar as we inject or apply definitions to them, then there's no such thing as objective truth. Do you see that? Because when we use words, we use them as pointers, don't we, church? Pointers. So when I say, ready for this? When I say man, I don't mean woman. I'm, it's pointing to, it's referring to something that exists in the real world. I know that's a dangerous thing to assume in the age of Bruce Jenner, but it's true. But if words, if, if, if we can control language and imprint our preferences onto the moral fabric of the universe and redefine any concept or word whenever we want, then there is no such thing as objective truth. And the universe is malleable. It's almost like an alternative creation story. Rather than accepting the fact that we were created in the image of God and there is an objective reality and there is a divine logos of the universe, John 1, the word became flesh, the logos became flesh, then that means that, that, that you need to align your life within that reality and moral fabric that you were existed to flourish in by being a steward of the body, the soul, and uh, the gifts that God has given you. But if language is merely malleable and you can redefine everything, then why can't man just remake himself in his own image? C.S. Lewis once said, for the power of man to make himself what he pleases means, as we have seen, the power of some men to make other men what they please. Oh, did you catch that? For the power of man to make himself what he pleases means, as we have seen historically, the power of some men to make other men what they please. That is the explanation of the last 250 years of the culture war in America. Or what are we at, 244, 245 years? It was an alternative creation story. It was a proxy war attack against the divine logos of the universe. I want to be as gods. I want to remake myself in my own image. And then if I'm God, then there's no end to my political project. Which is why Francis Schaeffer said, humanism is the placing of man at the center of all things and making him the measure of all things. Right, because if we're the measure of all things, then we're God. So why can't we kill 65 million unborn children since 1973 in America alone? Why can't we disciple children into the religion of transgenderism and then convince them to chop up their own genitalia to literally physically remake themselves in the image of the religion of secular humanism? Why can't we label godly men and women and mama bears and papa bears who speak at school board meetings as domestic terrorists? Who remembers this, by the way, from Merrick Garland? Did anyone here speak at a school board meeting, by the way? Did we, did we have any fiery, uh, anyone here? Okay, me. oh, yes, oh, come on, sister, there we go. And, and did you see how they lost their minds? I did, by the way, I did a six-minute, the spiciest, shortest little talk I could have done at the Thousand Oaks school board meeting. I said, you demonic Alfred Kinsey-inspired pornographers. Pushing porn on the and then I did a five-minute expose and overview of the of the early sexual Marxist revolutionaries who were founding the very organizations and companies that now produce the pornographic sex ed that gets sold to American public schools that brought all those mama bears and papa bears to school board meetings. You want to know the woman who started the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States, the group that is at the helm of producing all of this porn pushing on the kids. You want to know the woman who founded that organization in 1964? 
the medical director for Planned Parenthood, Mary Calderon, with seed money from Hugh Hefner, with a board member named Wardell Pomeroy, who had been the executive director of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. Alfred Kinsey, the, uh, do, do, by the, do we have junior hires in here today? Okay, if, if, if yes, then maybe I'll, I'll go the PG route. Anyways, Wardell Pomeroy is, I, it's not appropriate for me to describe exactly who and who Alfred Kinsey was, okay? But if you know the Kinsey Institute, okay, go do your research. I have a podcast called Unaborted with Seth Gruber because we're all unaborted. So if you, if you really want to get trained to be a pro-life ninja, go subscribe to that and we have whole episodes on who Alfred Kinsey was. Wardell Pomeroy was described by Time Magazine in a 1980 interview as part of the pro-incest movement. She sat on the board of the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States. And then when you start realizing this and you start showing up at school board meetings, Attorney General Merrick Garland says, yeah, at the Department of Homeland Security, we need to open up an inv investigation into the, the domestic, terrorist act uh, domestic terrorist activity happening at school board meetings. <laughs> but if you burn down the country in 2020, it was, it was mostly peaceful, slightly fiery, slightly fiery, but, but mostly peaceful. Um, and then Roe v. Wade got overturned on June 24th, 2022. Something my generation was told would never happen. If you're under 40 in here, um, if, raise your hand if you're under 40. Yeah, okay, we were told our entire lives that this was settled law. It was constitutionally decided, give it up, give up, it's over, the debate is settled. Not only did we win a massive victory in the culture war, we overturned the one thing of all things that we were told was the least likely to happen. June 24th, 2022. Which is also in the church calendar, the nativity of St. John the Baptist. Now, us Protestants, sometimes we're, we're, we're a little bad at like following the church calendar. We really should get back to our roots and really celebrate these Christian festivals. Amen, Pastor Steve? Um, so a lot of us Protestants were a little like, you know, removed from the, the, the ancient roots of Protestantism. Um, but reminder, the day Roe v. Wade got overturned is the same day in the church calendar that Christians celebrate Mary going to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who are both pregnant, and you got the prenatal John the Baptist doing backflips in the womb because he recognizes the divinity and humanity of his prenatal savior, prenatal deity, because Jesus is the second member of the Trinity and fully God and fully human, not from the moment of birth, but from the moment of conception, follow the science. So that's the second member of the Trinity in Mary's womb. But because God and its life together in the womb and Jesus is God, then you've got the prenatal deity fetus, Jesus, God, knitting the prenatal John the Baptist together in the womb while he knits himself together in the womb, because that is God in Mary's womb, which means that he's knitting himself together in the womb of a woman whose uterus he once knit together when he knit together Mary in the womb of Mary's mother. Yeah. Are you, any, does anyone, if you didn't have an espresso or a latte, I just, I just infused you. Holy Spirit fire. If you're bored in your faith, wake up every morning, Christian, and dwell on the incarnation. If that doesn't make you go like, oh, the creator of the universe takes on fetal flesh and becomes a little human in a womb of a uterus whose, womb, whose uterus he wants that together. This is wild, crazy stuff. Wow. Are you kidding me? The most wicked decision in American political history that labeled an entire class of pre-born human beings non-persons and made it legal to slaughter them through point of birth. That decision of all 365 days that could have gotten overturned. 
It gets overturned on the day that the church celebrates two unborn babies flipping around in the uterus, one of whom is God. You know, they say providence is when God winks. Do you believe God still intervenes in the affairs of men? I do. And I think he gave us a little wink or two in 2022. And then the evening of June 24th, 2022, when Roe v. Wade got overturned, there was a planetary alignment in the sky. Now, before you say, Pastor Steve, he's telling us to read the stars. Get them off the pulpit. I'm not saying read the stars, okay? I'm not being some weird, kooky, weird scientist or something, okay? Um, but uh, I, what did Jesus say? He's a wicked generation that seeks for signs and wonders. But as one Catholic priest, George Rutler said, <laughs> he said, but it's a stupid generation that ignores signs and wonders. <laughs> so when signs and wonders slap you in the face, you don't have to read the stars, just give, credit, give your credit to providence. So <laughs> there was a Mars, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn, and one other, all lined up in the night sky, visible to stargazers within hours of that wicked decision getting overturned. And then a photographer, an astrophotographer who takes pictures of space, he takes this picture of these five planets lined up, visible by the naked eye. Beautiful photo. This thing goes viral all across the world, not just America, the interwebs, right? It goes viral. The name of the photographer was Wright Dobbs. Oh, come on, guys. Do you know the name of the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade? Okay, thank you. Jeez Louise, man, I gotta bring some more fire second service. <laughs> Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization was the name of the lawsuit that the Supreme Court case that overturned Roe v. Wade. D-O-B-B-S, the guy's name was Dobbs. And then his first name was Wright. Like, they were right today, a few hours earlier in, in Dobbs. Like, that's so weird, right? Is that just a coinkadink? Or, or does God sometimes wink? and remind his people that he still intervenes in the affairs of men, which means you have a duty and responsibility to fulfill to your king. You know, in Acts ah, 27, in Acts it says that God ordained the boundaries of your existence, meaning it's not an accident that you live in California in 2023. So if God ordained it, that means there's a reason and a purpose. And if there's a reason and a purpose for the fact that you find yourself at this moment in world and American history, it means that you have duties and responsibilities to your king. Guys, we have gotten the script all wrong. We've been being told by the Rick Warrens and the Ed Stetzers and the Russell Moores and the Tim Kellers and the list goes on and on and on. Don't engage in politics. Just preach the gospel. Guys, I don't even know what that means anymore. I'm talking about the full counsel of God, baby. That's what I'm talking about when I say the gospel. But when people criticize people like Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Steve and Pastor Rob McCoy and Pastor Jack Hibbs and all of these wonderful brothers who are rising into this moment to contend against the spirit of the age and his acolytes that are obsessed with wiping out the image of God from the earth, and they start wielding politics in a constitutional republic where we the people are the sovereign, and so because we're the sovereign, we have more responsibility, and because we have more responsibility, we're gonna be judged more harshly by how we handled what God gave us. Parable of the talents, church? <laughs> and when godly men and women start rising to that and recognizing that there's no such thing as moral neutrality, there will be a dominant religion. There will be a dominant morality. We're currently living under the theocracy of the religion of secular humanism. 
That is the state religion and the only one currently welcomed in the halls of Congress in DC. And you're gonna learn a little bit today about the religion of humanism and how we got here. So when you, people start rising to that political warfare, recognizing that the culture and the politics, it was a veil, it was a masquerade for what was underlying it, a deeper spiritual battlefield happening the whole time. And when men like your pastors here start recognizing, we gotta engage, man. The Rick Warrens and Ed Stetzers and Tim Kellers and Russell Moores and Andy Stanley's say you need to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, to quote Andy Stanley. They start saying that you're creating an idol out of politics, to which I say, no, you've created an idol out of not being political in order to continue getting the ties of the registered Democrats who attend your church, whose political sensibilities you don't want to offend by preaching the full counsel of God and calling them to repentance for voting for and participating in the very party that has made it their platform priority to wipe out the image of God in the womb and from the earth and target anyone who would stand in the middle of the road of the culture of death and say, stop you will go no further. We have gotten the script all wrong. We've been being told by our evangelical betters, if you will. Ever heard the term big pharma? You all know another term, big Eva. Big evangelicalism, it's a thing. Ever heard of the gospel coalition? Okay. Now I'm not saying there, there's, I'm not saying there's nothing good that's ever come out of there. I'm just saying most of the people behind big Eva today are largely for the most part, you can never make blanket statements, are largely communicating this message. Andy Stanley literally wrote a book called Not In It To Win It. The premise of which is abandon the political aspect, just completely abandon it and just preach the life, death, death and resurrection of Jesus and not how the life, death and resurrection of Jesus should impact how you engage every issue and how you see every issue in this culture of death. We've been being told that if you get political and you talk about issues that are biblical issues, but they're defined by the culture of death as political, follow the science, you science deniers then you're going to lose gospel credibility because people who would have otherwise listened to the gospel that your pastor wants to preach, their ears will be closed to that because you've, you strayed away from your gospel-centered, centered, gospel-centered lane because you wanted to apply and widen the circle of how we view these issues through a biblical worldview. We have gotten the script all wrong. It's been because of the church's silence on these issues that has actually cost us our gospel credibility. Here's what I mean by that. I've been in the pro-life movement since I was a fetus, okay? Um, I've been sassy since conception, um, and you haven't seen me sassy yet, by the way. Um, my mother was a director of a pregnancy resource center in Azusa, California near APU in the late 1980s, early 1990s. I was born in 1991, and she was the director of that pregnancy resource center through all nine months of pregnancy with me. So I really have been a pro-life activist since I was a fetus. Because, you know, I've been told by the Anthony Fauci's and the Francis Collins and the entire Democrat Party and the FDA and the CDC and the World Health Organization that the body and her body's not her body. Remember? What's the rallying cry of the pro-choice movement? My body, my choice. So there's only one body, apparently, I guess. So then all parts of my body were actually part of my mother's body according to the science of humanism, which means every baby my mother saved through abortion, I saved. Because <laughs> I was just her body, my body, my choice, right? So that's why I've been a pro-life activist since I was a fetus. My point is to say this, I've been around the pro-life movement for a long, long time, and I have worked with and know many deists 
atheists and theists, okay? So either you believe in a, there's, there's some creator, but you know, who knows who he is, right? Or, or there is a Judeo-Christian God, but he just set the world spinning and he peaced out and he doesn't intervene in the affairs of men. Or an atheist, there's just no God at all, right? Uh, you deny God's existence. I know many people like that and worked with many people like that who are pro-life. They're pro-life activists. They're more faithful to protect the lives of the pre-born than most of the pulpits in America and most of the Christians in America. And do you know what one of the critiques is from that side of the aisle? I have no interest in hearing the gospel you want to preach to me. You tell me, church, that you worship a fetus. You tell me that your savior entered human history in a womb to redeem mankind from their sins. You tell me that we have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tested in every way as we are and yet without sin, and that he identified with you not from birth, but from conception. You tell me that your God creates people in his image and in his likeness, and that that image was knit together in the womb. You tell me that, that the greatest commandment that summarizes all the others is to love your neighbor as yourself and yet you do nothing to stop the murder of 65 million babies in 1973 in America alone. I'm not really interested in the gospel you want to share with me. We've gotten the script all wrong. It was our silence and abdication in the culture and political warfare that cost us our gospel credibility. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said, if the church can't speak up against something as evil as killing a baby, then the world has the right to ask whether Christ is real. And then he would say near the end of his life, he said, every abortion center ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. We've been living under the spell of the Johnson Amendment. And until we begin to contend on these issues and be faithful with the reins of power God has given us in a constitutional republic where we the people are the sovereign, we are sowing the seeds of our own destruction. You may still end up in heaven, Christian, absolutely. But what's going to be your story at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Do you believe that the scriptures gives us everything we need for life and godliness? If that's true, then we have everything we need. And we have the stories of the men and women who have gone before us, who either did it well and finished well, or royally screwed the pooch. So we have all the warnings. We have the manual right here. And I believe in this season in the culture war, in the first year without Roe v. Wade and the spirit of Roe over this country, I'm burdened with two examples, two options right now. As the church was labeled non-essential, but you could get a lap dance, kill your baby, and get weed. And those were all essential services as the FBI has arrested over 11 pro-life activists, sidewalk counselors peacefully contending outside of abortion centers just last fall, as OBGYNs are being threatened with losing their medical license 
if they share abortion misinformation. And as Elizabeth Warren, hail the Indian warlord, is, co- <laughs> is co-sponsoring legislation to silence the voice of pregnancy resource centers on Google, trying to advertise the abortion pill reversal, we have two options now. We have the route of Lot, or we have the route of Gideon. Now, did you know that the scriptures call Lot a righteous man? Do you know this? So apparently, Lot's in heaven. Okay. You remember uh, in Genesis when Lot is at the city gates? Remember of San Francisco? So Sodom, <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. I always get them mixed up. And the, the angels come to torch that city. Remember? So listen, Lot's at the city gates. He's the Christian influencer of his day. He's got a position of respectability and authority. He probably has sway over the political leaders and laws. You don't put a man at the city gates to welcome every foreigner into your land unless he's got position, influence, and respect. He takes the men to his house, remember? But they weren't men, they were angels. And then it says men from all parts of the city came to Lot's house. So every part of culture comes down and descending onto what is described as that one righteous man's house. Does it feel like every part of the culture of death is coming down onto the church? Heard of the Respect for Marriage Act a few months ago? Yeah, the euphemistically titled Respect for Marriage. It's the Destruction of Marriage Act. And if something doesn't change soon in the political aspect, in a few years it could be that Pastor Steve is preaching on Genesis and marriage is the union of one man and one woman permanently exclusively for the rearing of children and the good of society and you guys could lose your C3 status, which by the way, we should give that up anyways as an idol who cares. Anyway, amen. Or, or be fined for, uh, uh, for um, hate speech. Yeah, hate speech. Every part of our culture of death is descending onto the remnant. Approve of us, celebrate us, participate in our wickedness. Well, Lot comes out on his front steps of his house, you remember? And he says, brothers and sisters. So he tries to relate to the sexualized mob because what are they saying? Bring those men out that we might have sex with them. Remember? But they weren't men, they were angels. And Lot's trying to relate to the sexualized mob that wants to sleep with angels. Hey, brothers and sisters. No, they're not your brothers and sisters, Lot. Stop trying to get crumbs from the table of secular progressivism. 501c3 status. So you can make Christianity respectful and get, and get claps and accolades from the culture of death. Who cares? But then he does lob truth out there. He says, do not do this wicked and abominable thing. So he calls their actions wicked, yeah? Oh boy, do we have a lot of Christian influencers, Christian content creators, Christian pastors, Christian authors, Christian musicians who will speak truth. They will critique the spirit of the age and the culture of death to a certain extent. They'll speak just as much truth as the spirit of the age allows them. But they won't go the full way to mobilize their church to awaken. Do not do this wicked thing. So, here are my daughters. Have sex with them instead? You see, Lot was saved, but he wasn't salty. He wasn't preserving anything that mattered to his king, much less his own daughters, his own family, those that he's called to protect first. So his wife becomes in death 
what he should have been in life, a pillar of salt. Brothers and sisters, you can be saved but not salty, amen? Yeah. You can make it into the kingdom by the hair on your bum. And you can say, by grace and grace alone. What's it say, what's it say in the scripture, Pastor Steve? As if through fire. Some people will make it through, as if through fire. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was getting singed on the way in here, bro. <laughs> by grace and grace alone, yeah. But what's going to be your story at the marriage supper of the Lamb? When the sidewalk counselors and the parents speaking at school board meetings and the men who ran for office to stop the culture of death and the pastors who mobilized their congregation for righteousness are saying, look what God did. <laughs> Why? Just because I stood. Just because I stood. But when Lot was called to stand, he folded like a cheap suit. He capitulates. We have been like Lot in the American church in this culture war for many decades, we have been giving over our posterity to the sexualized mob and culture of death in order to remain relevant, to keep our place at the table, to make Christianity really respectable because we want it to be light. But all we did was kick the ball down, punt the can down the road for our children to fight the battle we should have been fighting for them. Reminds me of Thomas Paine, who argued for American independence before 1776, wrote Common Sense. He said, if trouble may come, let it be in my day so that my children may know peace. Listen, engaging in this battle is not about us. We're not like selfishly demanding our rights. Oh, I'm just going to use politics to preserve my own comfortable cush lifestyle. No, it's not about us. We're not demanding our rights. We're exercising our responsibility as stewards of the king. Or we have the option of Gideon, who was also facing his own culture war in Judges 6 and had a very different response than Lot. But he was like Lot early on. He was hiding away from the culture wars. But when God told him to stand, he did. In Judges 6, Gideon's hiding out in a cave. Why is he hiding out in a cave, Seth? Because they had Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism. <laughs> now, it's democratic, so I've been told it's much better than normal socialism. I'm not sure how that all works out, but I've been told it's much better. The Midianites were oppressing the Israelites because God had once again given them over to be ruled by those who hate him, hate them for their sin and refusal to obey the Lord. And so the Midianites were coming and taking everything the Israelites make. They would thresh their wheat and then they would just come and, you know, democratic socialism, give me 90%, you know. And so Gideon's hiding out in a cave, threshing his own wheat. He's like, screw this, I'm gonna make my own stuff over here. So he's a, it's a, he's a tax evader. <laughs> naughty, naughty Gideon. IRS doesn't like that. And then God comes to Gideon in a cave and he says, mighty man of valor, calls him by his identity, reminds him who he is. Now, what do you think Gideon is thinking, church? <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> this sucks. Our grandpapas told us you were the God that brought us up out of Egypt, that you were going to deliver us from the hand of the oppressor. Where's the milk and honey, y'all? This is not fair. You abandoned us. And uh, Gideon cooks God a meal. God lights it on fire. <laughs> Gideon freaks out. He's like, okay, okay, you're God, you're God. 
And then in that same conversation, like this is the same evening, okay? It says, go re- this is your homework this evening. You go read Judges 6, okay? It says, and that same night, God said, you walk out of this cave. And you go tear down that altar to Baal. And you take that Asherah pole and you chop that thing up too. Then we'll talk. Who was Baal? The pagan god of baby sacrifice. Who was Asherah? The goddess of sex. And they would worship Asherah through orgies and unbridled sexual escapades. Which nine months later results in an unwanted baby. Which you then pass through the fire to Baal or Moloch. What if I told you as it was in Judges 6, so it is today. The Planned Parenthood business model is to sexualize children while they're young, to titillate the masses, to break down sexual and societal mores so they have more sex, create more unwanted babies, which you can then pass through the fires to the pagan gods of convenience, money, education, and career well-being. But it's still demon worship, isn't it? Because does Satan care what name you call him? Was Moloch and Baal really a little bronze dude with a furnace underneath him and his outstretched hands where they burnt their children? Or was it Satan masquerading as an idol? Who's the dragon in Revelation waiting for Mary to give birth to eat the Christ child? Satan. Who's behind the killing of babies by Herod in Bethlehem and by Pharaoh in Egypt? Satan. This is his pride and joy. God begins with the Israelites' abortions before he starts addressing anything else. I told you I was bringing the savior of the world through your lineage. I told you that a child would lead you. Stop killing my babies. So Gideon walks out of the cave and he tears down the altars. He pulls down the high places. Then the people come out the next morning and they go, where are our idols? And then Gideon's dad comes out and he goes, let Baal contend for himself. If he's a god, let him defend himself. It reminds me of Elijah, the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this? He's like, okay, you build your altar and I'll build my altar. And then Elijah goes, show him God. And And then Elijah walks up to the prophets of Baal and he's like, so what's going on? And then he literally says, where is your God? Is he on the toilet? <laughs> if you got a problem with that, take it up with the Holy Scriptures. Talk about a culture warrior, huh? Oh, that Elijah, he was probably just prostituting his great commission responsibilities to a politician. No, he was engaging in what he recognized was a spiritual battlefield and publicly mocking the prophets of Baal and their God. I think we need more of that kind of spirit and confidence in the culture wars today as Christians to say, where is your God and behold Yahweh. And June 24th, 2022 was an example of that. So then the people, the Israelites and the Midianites, they tell Gideon's dad, bring your son out so we can kill him. So yeah, there could be a cost to your obedience to be like Gideon in this moment in 2023 and walk out of the cave that we've been hiding in to tear down the high places of child sacrifice. (laughs) 
G.K. Chesterton once said, happy is he who knows not only the hidden causes of things, but who has not lost touch with their beginnings. I know it's always risky quoting Chesterton at a 9 a.m. first service. Chesterton's like, okay, I need to chew on that for like the next week. Um, so after you read Judges 6 and you spend time in the word of God every day, you need to read Chesterton every day. Uh, honestly, I mean, I don't, are you even living if you're not reading Chesterton and C.S. Lewis every day? I'm just saying, I don't know if you are. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll do that. Um, Chesterton, one of the only men in the early 1900s who was a son of Issachar, the men who understood the times and knew what the people of God ought to do. Oh, so there's a connection between understanding the culture that you live in and how you should then live. He was one of the only men to diagnose the spirit of Margaret Sanger and the early eugenicists that were attempting to remake man in their own image which means then the power of some men to make other men what they please. Happy is he who knows not only the hidden causes of things, but who has not lost touch with their beginnings. What's Chesterton saying? Happy is he who knows how we got here, who knows that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And happy is he who can diagnose those issues and do something about it before it's too late. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Unfortunately, the number one response I've gotten from wonderful brothers and sisters like you guys at faithful churches, faithful churches, not woke churches, at faithful churches on my White Rose Resistance National Life Tour is this, Seth, I never heard any of that before in my entire life. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Margaret Sanger starts getting radicalized by early communists and socialists in the New York labor movement in New York City in the early 1900s. This is the patron saint of feminism. This is the founder of the American Birth Control League, later renamed Planned Parenthood. Sanger saw what other early revolutionaries didn't see. She saw how to use sex and birth control and titillating the masses that would be the key that could unlock the revolution. She understood that the sexual revolution had to, become, had to come before the social revolution. Why? Because people in the early 1900s, in a much more healthy American culture, amen, they were living much more virtuous, let's say is the best word to use. Uh, they understood that liberty is not the freedom to do whatever you want. Liberty is the freedom to do as you ought, which means that liberty are the wise restraints that make men free that you have to have guardrails. The musician who can play so beautifully and professionally can only do so because he's mastered the boundaries and the borders and the rules and the laws to play so freely. Who knows any addicts in this room? Sex addicts, uh, pornography addicts, drug addicts, alcohol. Okay, aren't they wonderful engaged public citizens in the public square? They're never late for birthdays, right? They're, they're always uh, giving you a phone call. Um, they're really engaged in knowing who the politicians are in their city uh, and making sure that they're promoting righteousness. No. What's my point? If you can break down sexual and societal mores and you can reduce people to their most animalistic appetites to indulge every craving and desire that they always have like some dog or animal, then they can't govern themselves anymore. So they'll become a sucker for the first would-be tyrant with his utopian promises that rises amongst you. As one of our founders said, 
you have forgotten the brilliance and, and genius of your own independence, which is what? Liberty. So Sayer understood this. Her strategy was different than some of the other Marxist revolutionaries around the world who had had failed attempted revolutions, usually because of nationalism and love of country and people were more engaged in seeking the welfare of the city. So she starts parroting, she starts trumpeting, if we can use birth control and sex, maybe that's the key that will unlock the Marxist communist revolution that has so far failed to materialize. You need to understand, Sanger was not just the birth control gal. Please don't think of the abortion industry and Margaret Sanger as like separate from the larger humanistic Marxist experiment. Please don't do that. Sanger was not detached from that. She was one of the architects of that. The patron saint of feminism, whose body count is greater than Mao, Stalin, Hitler, and Mussolini combined. Yet those men's names are appropriately reviled, but her name is praised in the halls of Congress. And they just erected a new statue to the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the deadliest and most dangerous Supreme Court justice to the pre-born. And they gave her Medusa-looking tentacles and horns, which have always been used as a representation of the devil or of Baal. Hmm. Maybe the culture war was a proxy war for the spiritual war. So Margaret Sanger begins to write and publish her ideas, and the first pen to paper example we have of this is in her paper called Woman Rebel. Woman Rebel, with the tagline, No Gods and No Masters. No Gods and No Masters? Wait, that just sounds like Eve in Genesis. Eat the apple, Eve, get woke. God's holding out on you. Because if you eat the apple, then your eyes shall be open. So, she, so they're currently not open. So God's holding out, he's hiding things from you. So you need to get woke. You need to see underlying systems of oppression that the Christians are hiding from you. And then ye shall be as gods. She starts her writing saying, yeah, no gods and no masters. I'm my own God. I can do whatever the heck I want. And here's what she says. Rebel women claim the following rights. <laughs> the right to be lazy, the right to be an unmarried mother, the right to destroy, and the right to love. Her publications on contraception, sexual liberation, and the social revolution caused her to get indicted on three counts for breaking the Comstock laws. Now, the Comstock laws allowed the um, Postal Service and the government to actually go through the mail. A lot of conservatives wouldn't defend this today because they would say, oh, that's, that's, that's too much big government, and remove inappropriate pornographic material from the mail because to protect a healthy culture, you have to have a healthy families and healthy ideas, and you can't just let this stuff get in front of children and families. Rather than getting arrested, Margaret Sanger ships off her kids to be raised by someone else, she has her socialist friends in the, New York labor, uh, in the New York labor movement forge her a passport, and she flees to England. I'm giving you the beginning of the seeds of Planned Parenthood. You know, the Bible talks about a bad seed and bitter harvest. So if you know the seeds that were planted early on, you'll understand why the harvest is so ugly now. She spends 18 months in England, and she gets more radicalized in England than she was in New York. She meets the Neo-Malthusians. The Neo-Malthusians. Okay, what's, what's that? Malthusian, Malthus. It refers to the last name Malthus. Thomas Malthus. Thomas Malthus was none other than the Anthony Fauci of the 18th century. He was just following the science. Science. I am science. 
And whatever I change, the science changes. And he was the true first overpopulation theorist. Who's ever seen George Soros and Bill Gates and the entire liberal establishment always say, we have just too many people on planet Earth? It's funny, they never volunteered to Hillary Clinton themselves. Suicide. Suicide themselves. It's always the poorer and darker of skin. Have you noticed this about the liberal establishment? When they, whenever they decry this coming population bomb, if we don't significantly reduce the world population, we're not going to be able to live on Mother Gaia. I mean, I mean, planet Earth. But they never volunteer themselves. And they still go to Davos two weeks ago on their own private airplanes, polluting the environment while telling you that you're bad if you fly anywhere or you have more than three cat. C.S. Lewis once talked about these people. This is important for you to understand. He said, of all the tyrannies, a tyranny exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Yeah, I'd rather be being governed by robbers and thieves than by Elizabeth Warrens and AOCs and Bernie Sanders and George Soros's and Klaus Schwab's because there is, no, there is no limiting principle to the lengths that they will go to remake man in their own image because they believe they're on a righteous crusade. So while you're being put into gulags, they will be saying you're welcome. That's a far more dangerous tyrant, isn't it? Thomas Malthus was the first overpopulationist. That's where we get all these ideas. Here's a little bit of him, since she got influenced by the Neo-Malthusian, so you understand how we got here. She, he said, uh, all children beyond, uh, born beyond what would be required to keep up the population to a desired level must necessarily perish, unless room be made for them by the deaths of grown persons, the grown persons that never volunteer to suicide themselves. Therefore, we should facilita facilitate, instead of foolishly and vainly endeavoring to impede the operations of nature in producing this mortality. And if we dread the too frequent horrid form of famine, COVID, we should sedulously encourage the other forms of destruction which we compel nature to use, the jab. <clears throat> instead of recommending cleanliness to the poor, we should encourage contrary habits. In our towns, we should make the streets more narrow. We should crowd more people into the houses to court the return of the plague. In the country, we should build our villages near stagnant pools and particularly encourage settlements in all marshy and unwholesome situations. But above all, and here comes the attack against Christians, we should reprobate specific remedies for ravaging diseases and restrain those benevolent but much mistaken people who thought that they were doing a service to mankind, thought they were doing a service, huh? by projecting schemes for the total extirpation of particular disorders. Can I summarize that for you? Some people are good and some people are bad. We need more of the good people and less of the bad people. The bad people tend to be the alcoholics, the criminals, and the mentally and physically handicapped. We don't want them to have kids. They're really bad. They're bad for the racial stock. We would be better if they didn't exist and we're not allowed to have kids. So you stupid Christians with your 501c3s and your ministries of mercy, because you're compelled by the image of God and the love of neighbor who are trying to care for the disadvantaged and the oppressed who need more help and care, you stupid idiots. Those people need to die for the good of humanity. 
So when Margaret Sanger meets the Neo-Malthusians in England, they're the disciples of Thomas Malthus, that demon. This is where the ideas that would plant Planned Parenthood get their beginning. Then she meets a man named Havelock Ellis. Havelock Ellis, who the heck is that? Remember I referred to Alfred Kinsey earlier? Well, Havelock Ellis was England's Alfred Kinsey. He wrote over 50 books on every lewd form of sexual experimentation and desires. He himself was impotent, that's the PG version, so he was always trying to find new ways to get excited. And Havelock Ellis begins a raging affair with Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger sleeps her way up the levers of power in England. Ever heard of H.G. Wells? Shared a bed with him. This is how she would wield power. She would just sleep her way to the top. Kamala Harris. <clears throat> Havelock Ellis was a sexual degenerate who documented his mm, experimentations. Havelock Ellis was a eugenicist. What is eugenics? Um, eugenics is the root word good in birth. Good in birth which means that some people are not good in birth, <laughs> and so they need to be prevented from having children. I think you guys are aware of what the ideology of eugenics. Well, Havelock Ellis had a mentor named Francis Galton. Francis Galton. Francis Galton is the modern father of the eugenics movement. Francis Galton coins the term eugenics. <laughs> okay, are you seeing this? Margaret Sanger. Sex, titillate the masses, crazy, porn, reduce us to our most animalistic appetites, affair with Havelock Ellis, whose mentor is the modern father of the eugenics movement who coins the term eugenics. Francis Galton had a half-cousin, Charles Darwin. Yeah, mm -hmm. right? Right, that makes sense, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Survival of the fittest, might makes right. There's no dignity attached to human beings. You're just electrified smudge. You're just cosmic blobs banging around in the universe. You're no more valuable than a dog, a cat, or a cow. Isn't that the teachings of Darwinism? So the strong will survive, and the weak will die, even if the strong have to <laughs> kill the weak, because it's an animal kingdom, right? Darwinism, whose cousin is Francis Galton who takes those ideas, puts them into the natural conclusion of eugenics, who mentors Havelock Ellis, who is the biggest sexual and political influence on the life of Margaret Sanger. Havelock Ellis and Margaret Sanger would write letters to one another for decades after she comes back to New York and opens her first illegal birth control clinic in the brown section of New York, an area heavily populated by Jews, Slavs, and Italians, and those that Margaret Sanger called unfit unfit to live. Anyone disturbed yet? Did we pass around barf bags when you came into church this morning? <laughs> Never heard this before, have you? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. To condense a brutal history into a shorter segment, Margaret Sanger founds the American Birth Control League in 1921. She founds the American Birth Control Review in 1917, and her review is where she would publish her ideas. It was a journal, and she would invite eugenicists from all over the world to publish their ideas as well. Here's a couple quotes from the founder of Planned Parenthood. She, she, uh, she longed for when the choking human undergrowth of morons and imbeciles would be segregated and sterilized. 
Her great aspiration, according to her book, The Pivot of Civilization, written in 1922, was, quote, to create a race of thoroughbreds by encouraging more children from the fit and less from the unfit. If you forget anything this morning, if you remember anything this morning, remember the word fit and unfit. That is the language of eugenicists. Some people are fit to live, and those who are unfit to live should not be allowed to have children. As she put it in a speech at the 1921 Eugenics International Congress in New York, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. And then she started hosting conferences in New York and inviting her friends to come share their ideas. Eugenicists from all around the world. Here's how they put it at their 1921 Eugenics Congress in New York City. The government of the United States deliberately encourages and even makes necessary by its laws the breeding. It's like they're talking about animals. The breeding with a breakneck rapidity of idiots, defectives, diseased, feeble-minded, and criminal classes. Billions of dollars are expensed by our state and federal governments and by those private charities and philanthropies for the care, the maintenance, and the perpetuation of these classes. Year by year, more money is expensed to maintain an increasing race of morons which threatens the very foundations of our civilization. You see, they're unwanted. Oh, we've heard that term before. Oh, they're unfit to live. Yeah, the Nazis had a term for that. It was Lebensinvertensleben. Lebensinvertensleben. Translated, life unworthy of life. So there's an admission that they're human beings. It's life, but it's just not worthy. It's not valuable a proxy war attack against the Imago Dei. By the way, they all know they're killing babies. Do you know this? They all know it's a human being. Harrison Hickman, a pollster for the National Abortion Rights Action League. Ever heard of NARAL? The National Abortion Rights Action League. He, he spoke at the 20th anniversary convention of NARAL. So he's a pro-abortion academic and pollster. And he said the quiet part out loud. He said, probably nothing has been as damaging to our cause, what the pro-abortion cause, as the advances in technology which have allowed pictures of the developing fetus. Because people now talk about the fetus in much different terms than they did 15 years ago. They talk about it as a human being, which is not something I have an easy answer on how to cure. What did a pro-abortion leader just tell you? Uh... It's a disease. It's a problem that they're humanizing the child because we all know it's a human being. And I, I haven't come up with a solution yet for technology that just shows the reality of what the baby already looks like in the womb. Gosh dang it, the preborn's getting humanized in the public square. It is life, but it's Lebensinvertensleben. And the longer you tolerate the eugenicist proxy war attack against the king of kings and the lord of lords and those created in his image, the sooner you will find, church, that those ideas come for you too. When you detach the Imago Dei, when you detach human dignity, value, rights, from the fact that you're just a human, there's no limiting principle to who can be defined as fit or unfit. It was Dr. Mildred Jefferson, the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, the founder of the National Right to Life Committee, one of the oldest pro-life organizations in America, and the woman who turned Ronald Reagan pro-life. 
famously said decades ago, today it is the unborn child. Tomorrow it is likely to be the elderly or those who are incurably ill. Who knows but that a little later, it might be anyone who has political and moral views that do not fit into the new distorted order. Those who murder the unborn cannot be trusted to govern the born. And those who murder the preborn and call it health care will one day murder you too. You see, the tyrannical Marxist, Marxist experiment only takes a little bit longer in America because of our form of government. So we get comfortable with liberty. We stand on the shoulders of giants and we think we're flying. We forget the price at which these freedoms and rights come, but it just takes a little bit longer. And the enemy knows that if you move slowly enough, you can, you can put the American public in a trance. And so we meet people all the time who say, ah, communism can never come to America. Socialism can never come to America, to which Ronald Reagan would say, if socialism ever comes to America, it will come in the name of liberalism. Right? Because Reagan, like Chesterton, understood these ideas and where they would inevitably lead to. This is Sanger's beginnings. She launches the Negro Project. Um, she starts getting, yeah, she called it the Negro Project. She starts getting black ministers and social leaders to propagandize birth control because they recognized that the black people were starting to kind of realize that maybe this was targeting them. Uh, and let me just prove it to you. Sanger said, we propose to hire three or four color minist colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. We do not want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the black minister is the one who can straighten out that idea if it occurs to any more of his rebellious members. As my brother and friend, Pastor John Amanchukwu says, oh, I'm a rebellious member, baby. <laughs> and I'm gonna awaken my black brothers and sisters to the eugenicist, racist proxy war that this was to wipe out the image of God from the earth. And then she hired Negro Project directors to propagandize birth control. So you need to understand, Planned Parenthood did not begin with abortions. Did you know this? They did not begin with abortions. Early on, Planned Parenthood actually opposed abortions. My team uh, today or tomorrow is gonna post something on my Instagram, so go follow and check it out. You, by the way, you have to search Seth Gruber official, the whole stinking username, or you can't find me on Instagram. It's just fascinating how that happens. I, it must be a coinkadink. Uh, they're about to post a scan we have from a 1964 Planned Parenthood produced and written health booklet that says, quote, abortion ends the life of a baby after it has already begun, and it is dangerous to your life and health. Planned Parenthood admitting in the 60s that we all know it's a baby, it kills the baby. And by the way, hey mom, it actually could be really dangerous to you and make you infertile. Planned Parenthood will go to the grave today before they admit those two things in the public square. And they were saying in 1964. So you need to understand early on, Planned Parenthood was not launched to perform abortions. That was a later iteration. Early on, it was birth control and, and pr propagandizing and, and uh, mentoring people to use birth control, engage in any sexual appetite they had but it was particularly focused on those they deemed unfit to live, those they didn't want reproducing or have too, having too many children. Uh, we don't have time to get into some of the other uh, relationships she had, but let's just say this. Uh, Nazi sympathizers, uh, people who helped influence Nazi policy in Germany, Lothrop Stoddard, who did a journalistic speaking tour in Germany and met with Adolf Hitler and wrote a book called The Menace of the Underman, The Menace of the Underman, 
underman, referring to black people. And then the Nazis got the German term Untermensch, or subhuman, as the translation of the English term underman. Guys, the Nazis got the term Untermensch to describe the Jews as subhuman from the English version of Margaret Sanger's board member's book. Lothrop Stoddard, who sat on the board of the American Birth Control League. We could go on and on and on. The relationships are disgusting. And, uh, and uh, well, maybe I'll get to it in second service, but you can't stick around because we don't have the room for you. So just watch <laughs> it live. So Chesterton would diagnose very early on where these, all, all of these ideas would go. He described um, the eugenesis of his day the way we should describe the eugenesis of our day. Um, he said they combine a hardening of the heart with a sympathetic softening of the head. Because they are stupid ideas. But brothers and sisters, please do not mistake in stupid ideas for a lack of zeal. They might be stupid. They might be able to be defeated in intellectual debate, but they will contend for those evil and stupid ideas nonetheless. We are in this position because we have been choosing the route of Lot instead of the route of Gideon. We've been abdicating and giving up our children to the culture of death rather than engaging the spirit of the age. Chesterton proved his prescience in 1920, one year before Sanger launched the American Birth Control League. Chesterton wrote in an England newspaper in 1920, explaining where all these ideas would go if we didn't do something about them. He said, we are not so very far off from even the sacrifice of babies if not to a crocodile, at least to a creed. But I just told you Planned Parenthood didn't start defending abortions until the late 1960s. And yet Chesterton, one year before the organization that would bear the name Planned Parenthood was launched, was saying, oh no, th this will end in child sacrifice. Because when you open up the door to define some people as fit and some people as unfit, when you start creating hierarchies and litmus tests and checkboxes for who's valuable and who isn't and what qualities make you valuable and what don't and what criterias and functions and cognitive abilities make you worthy of protection and which don't, there's no limiting principle to that idea. For the power of man to make himself what he pleases means, as we have seen, the power of some men to make other men what they please. Chesterton saw that one year before Sanger launches the American Birth Control League, saying, we're actually not very far off right now from sacrificing the babies again. And here we are 50 years since Roe v. Wade, and we're starting to see how that ideology is coming for political dissidents, it's coming for the elderly, it's coming for those who are incurably ill. We must always take sides. There's no such thing as moral neutrality. R.J. Rush Dooney, the modern father of the homeschool movement in America, said that dominion does not disappear when a man renounces it. It's simply transferred to another person, perhaps to his wife, children, employer, or the state, where the individual surrenders his due dominion, where the family abdicates it, and the worker and employer reduce it, they're another party, usually the state concentrates that dominion. Where organized society surrenders power, the mob gains it, proportionate to the surrender.
In other words, when you abdicate and you say, I just preach the gospel, man. That's what Tim Keller told me to do. I don't do the culture war stuff. I don't do the political warfare stuff. (laughs) You're just guaranteeing that those who hate God and hate Christians and hate the pre-born and hate the religion that built this republic will gain power to the same degree that you abdicate it. That's why we're in this position. So what do they call us, Christian nationalists? Sure, whatever, it's better than secular globalism. There will be a religion, there will be a morality that reigns in the public square. The question is whose? So in three minutes, a young woman named Sophie Scholl, at 21 years old, was walking the streets of Munich, Germany, in 1942. Now listen, do you understand that this was the same battle? Please understand, church, it was the Jews then, it's the pre-born now, and now you're very close to being defined as the next iteration of those defined unfit to live. That's why they called you domestic terrorists when you spoke at a school board meeting. It's why Kareem Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary who replaced Circle Baksaki, was saying last fall that the greatest and most extreme threat to freedom and democracy is ultra-MAGA Republicans. But you understand when they say ultra-MAGA Republicans, whatever that means, they just mean any conservative who wants to protect the pre-born and put American interests first. You understand that, right? Oh, right, because you're now living through being defined as a Lebensunvertensleben. She's fighting the same ideology then, just with less freedom to contend in the political square for the rights of her neighbor than we do here. And she sees a paper on the sidewalk, and she picks it up, and it says, Leaflets of the White Rose. She starts reading this. It's explicitly condemning the crimes of the Nazis and asking people to wake up. 1942, guys, Jews have been wearing the yellow star for three years. They're already being burned in concentration camps. It says, we are the white rose resistance. We are your bad conscience and we will not leave you alone. So her heart is stirred to action. 21 year old Sophie come to find out the white rose resistance had not only been launched, but was being run by none other than her older brother, Hans. (laughs) So what's Sophie thinking, bro, what the heck? This is really cool. You holding out on me, but you understand Hans at 24 was trying to protect his little sister. He knew how dangerous political resistance was to the Nazis in 1942. Sophie becomes the only woman and the youngest member of the White Rose Resistance. For the rest of 1942, they stay up late and they print, they write, and they distribute anti-Nazi leaflets all around Germany. In 1943, February 18th, they took things to the next level. And Hans and Sophie, brother and sister, walked onto the campus at the University of Munich during class time when the halls were quiet. And they start dropping off piles of their leaflets all across the halls of the university. And then Sophie, in an iconic act, walks to the third floor balcony, which you can visit today at the University of Munich. And she throws an entire stack of leaflets down to the atrium below. The janitor, a committed Nazi, catches Sophie in the act, calls the Gestapo, and has Hans and Sophie arrested on February 18th, 1943. So we're um, two weeks away from the 80th anniversary of their beheading. Four days later, they were taken to the guillotine. Because they were arrested on February 18th, 1943, they missed a meeting they had scheduled that afternoon with a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
the founder of the Confessing Church. Killed on April 9th, 1945 at Flossenburg Prison for his failed assassination attempt in the Valkyrie plot to take the life of Hitler. Sophia, 21 years old, was a daughter of Issachar. She understood the times and how she should live in them. The prison guards were so disturbed by Sophie's bravery in her four days in prison that they relaxed the rules and let Hans and Sophie meet with their parents in a side room minutes before being taken to the guillotine. And Sophie's mother looked at Sophie and said, remember Jesus, Sophie. And Sophie simply responded, yes, but you too, mama. And the executioner said, he had never seen someone meet his end as she did. Here is Sophie talking prophetically to you today, church, to waken up and realize that evil people do evil things. Do, 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 do. That's all of human history. Stop complaining about it. Recognize that America is not the norm, it's the exception. We're so fat on freedom and liberty, we mistaken it for licentiousness and we forget the cost at which these freedoms come. This is the exception. America is the exception. The norm is tyranny. The norm is genocide. So she understood that if we were to overcome evil, the good people needed to act. Stop blaming the doers of evil. Ask yourself what you will do. What did Edmund Burke say? Evil is, uh, the only thing that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. How about Ronald Reagan? Evil is powerless when the good are unafraid. So moments before her death, Sophie explains to us now, nearly 80 years since she was beheaded, how we got here and how we can get out of this position. The real damage, gosh dang it, a 21-year-old. The real damage is caused by all of those millions out there who just want to survive. You know, the honest men and women, like Lot, who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed <laughs> by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their strength for fear of antagonizing their own weaknesses. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those for whom freedom, honor, truth and principles, it's just literature. Those who live small, die small. It's the reductionistic approach to life, church. Because if you keep it small, you will keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. FBI, Department of Homeland Security. But it's all an illusion. Because they, they die too those people, us, who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets, they're going to lead to the same place as wide avenues. And a little candle burns itself out just like the flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. Okay, who speaks like that at 21? That sounds like Chesterton. That sounds like C.S. Lewis. That sounds like J.R.R. Tolkien. That sounds like Winston Churchill. A young woman with the lion of the tribe of Judah roaring inside of her. 
to say, get onto the battlefield for, my, for, for your king. It's not about you. It's about your neighbors. It's about those being wiped out by would-be tyrants in the religion of humanism. What are you going to do? And so as she was escorted to the chopping block, she looked out of her prison jailed window, according to her cellmate. These were Sophie's final words. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there's hardly anyone willing to give themselves up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day, and I have to go now. But what does my death matter? If through us, thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action, for obedience is better than sacrifice, amen. Well, they never saw thousands awakened and stirred to action. The church remained asleep. And Sophie's final words before the blade fell was the sun still shines. And Hans's final words were simply, freedom, freedom. Brothers and sisters, it is a late hour of the American culture war. Frankly, the hour could not be later. I am rebuilding the white rose resistance for this generation against our silent but far more deadly holocaust of abortion to build the army of Christian resistance that Hans and Sophie dreamed of but never saw realized to build the, to end the holocaust of our day, abortion. While rose blossoms may perish in the fall, they reappear in the spring. And while all of the members of the White Rose Resistance were found and executed, their sacrifice has planted the good seeds the anti-Sanger seeds into the soil of the Republic and your sacrifice church will water those seeds. So one day thousands will be awakened and stirred to action. The white rose will blossom again and we can say the sun still shines. So we can look our king in the eye one day and not get in on the hair of our bum, but say, look what God did because we stood. I am inviting you to join the White Rose Resistance. I'm gonna give you a hug afterwards, but listen, I need your money because I'm trying to build something to be a pain in the rear, a stick in the eye, and a fly in the ointment to the abortion industrial complex, the culture of death, and dare I say, the spirit of the age and his obsession with every proxy war attack imaginable against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the little babies, the children, and those created in his image. And I can't build this without you. My pastor Rob McCoy calls me the Charlie Kirk of the pro-life movement. I'm not joking and I'm not bragging. I'm telling you, I've been sassy since conception. I've been birthed to do this work. And I want to build the Turning Point USA of the pro-life movement to be like Gideon and walk out of the cave we've been hiding in to tear down the high places of child sacrifice. If you want to join us, scan the QR code on the screen. Scan the QR code on your paper or rip it off and fill it out. We have merch available. We have white roses for anyone who joins the white rose resistance today. And you get access to a monthly call with me live on zoom to turn you into pro-life ninjas. I'll see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven. Will you? All right. So thank you for this powerful voice. We, 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 we want to pray for you. For the el pastors and elders, we want to come up and pray for you. We, we appreciate you, the voice you've given us. You've given us truth bomb after truth bomb this morning and woken us up. So we thank, thank you, you for what you're doing, and we, we come alongside you and let's pray.
Jesus, we lift up Seth, Lord. Lord, we know the enemy is pushing hard against him, Lord. Doesn't want this message to get out. Doesn't want the truth, Lord Jesus, to get out, Lord. Lord, thank you for the, the lion that you put inside this man, the lion of the tribe of Judas. Thank you for the, the spirit that you've raised up for him at this time to speak out against these things, Lord. We, we come alongside him as Harvest Church, Lord, and, and just ask that you would fill him with beyond measure, Lord. Thank you for his voice. Jesus, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, hey, brothers. Hey, church, uh, just, just so you know that there, there is... Um, there's hope in the gospel. Jesus Christ came to save the sin. There's not one of us in this room that is not a sinner, has not, has not uh, uh, done horrible things. So for those of you who are really touched by abortion, if, or if, if that's been something that's, that's marked by your history, know that that does not have to be your future. So there are people here from Lifeline Ministry that would love to, to come alongside you, pray for you, uh, if, if you know someone or have gone through that. So uh, thank you, church. Uh, God bless you guys. Peace. Thank you.